Super Talk Mississippi media production. Hi, this is Dr. Andy Barlow with the Chiropractic Physician Center of Tupelo and author of the number one best-selling book, The Code Breaker. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Then call my office at 662-844-1414 and order my new book, The Code Breaker. Welcome in on a Friday and already a rough start to my day, at least. So I got about 15 minutes into recording of this podcast, and because I have a Dell laptop, and Dell laptops are the absolute worst, do not buy one, Um, because I have one of those, about 15 minutes into the recording of the podcast, it decided just randomly that it had to update. Uh, So it didn't save any of my files, I couldn't recover them uh, at all, and the computer, it took about an hour to update, because that's what Dell laptops do when they update, just randomly decided today was the day and didn't save, or anything, uh, the previous 15 minutes. So this is Friday Podcast Volume 2, even though you'll never get to hear Volume 1. It's buried deep in the depths of the internet somewhere, I guess. But it is good to be with you. I'm Michael Borky. This is The Rebel Report. Thank you for making the podcast a part of your day. A ton of stuff to get to. But I was thinking about this last night. After yet another scandal, and this one, I mean by far the worst uh, that has come out so far in the last few months with uh, the culture in the NFL franchise formerly known as the Washington Redskins, name to be determined, uh, the Washington Post story that came out yesterday that highlighted uh, a culture of mistreatment of the female employees there, 15 of which came out uh, to give their accounts, and it was backed up in some cases by text message evidence or, or corroborating stories Uh, Just another uh, example of horrible leadership in that organization. If you remember, I mean, this is not the first time a story like this has come out about the team formerly known as the Redskins. I pointed out on the radio yesterday, this was before the story came out, that, I mean, if it's as bad as people are saying, this is the same team that two years ago uh, had some kind of retreat with big money people and asked their cheerleaders to escort some of these rich uh, people affiliated with the team to a nightclub that night. This is a team that had that scandal in their past, and the story comes out yesterday, and uh, it's it just highlighted a, an inappropriate. It's not even the word to describe it. It's worse than that, but the, the culture that existed within their organization just was all around terrible. And this offseason has not been good uh, for a lot of college football programs. Obviously, very different level from what happened at, say, Oklahoma State versus what happened uh, with the Washington NFL team. Very different things. Not to equate the two, but uh, when you look at it in terms of college football, I I was thinking about this last night that um, you're an Ole Miss fan listening to this right now. How good does it feel to have or to not have your school affiliated with any of this? It feels like it's been a long time since there was some kind of issue in college football or football in general and Ole Miss wasn't brought into it somehow or another. I mean, you've had a coach get in trouble for problematic tweets at Mike Leach at Mississippi State. You've had a coach have to do a ton of stuff and also took a pay cut at Oklahoma State for wearing a One America News Network shirt. 
Uh, you had a strength and conditioning coach at Iowa get fired for misconduct. You had a coach at Utah, and I believe it was Utah, that used a racial slur in a text message. Uh, he's going to be kept on staff, uh, but that came out. You had a coach at Clemson use a racial slur, and or it came out that a coach at Clemson used a racial slur. You had Texas players threaten boycott if changes didn't happen. You had Kansas State players threaten boycott if a student didn't get punished for something that he put on social media. All this stuff is going on, and none of it at all involved Ole Miss. And I was thinking last night, that's got to feel so good for Ole Miss fans. Because it wasn't long ago when, I mean, you guys all remember it, not to rehash a, a bad past, but when you had an NCAA investigation that included two notices of allegations, uh, on top of an NCAA investigation, you had a coach that went on Twitter and basically invited that NCAA investigation. So you've got NCAA trouble, you've got problematic tweets, and then, oh, by the way, the escort service scandal. So it was a big trifecta at Ole Miss, and it's something that, it felt like that lasted forever. And now, when you talk about the new hires in college football, or just college football in general, Lane Kiffin, of all people, Lane Kiffin is one of the the few not problematic coaches out there anymore. <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of what it feels like at this point with how everything's popping up everywhere. But the way he's handled uh, the protests and... Uh, the marches and the the state flag issue at the Capitol. I mean, he's kind of nailed it. He stayed off Twitter. He hasn't really done anything other than be kind of funny on Twitter. He has not invited NCAA investigations. He uh, Lane Kiffin's kind of been laid back and chill. I mean, when you look at the the landscape of of college football, Ole Miss hasn't really been involved outside of a Wolken column talking about how they need to change the names or whatever, but just to ignore him. Um, by and large, Lane Kiffin and, and Ole Miss has really kind of stayed out of it. And I know he's only been on the job for for a few months, but considering how uh, things were handled elsewhere, um, you haven't seen that at Ole Miss. And it's, it's kind of nice to not have to cover something like that uh, on a daily basis like we used to have to, thanks uh, to... Ole Miss two head coaches ago. But it's got to feel good. I was thinking about that last night. That is certainly not, and I hope that's not coming off as diminishing the the report that came out about uh, the Washington football team uh, because that's just brutal, full stop. But when you look at college football and and what has happened over the last few months, to not have Ole Miss involved in any way, (laughs) it's got to feel good. So let's turn the page here. First, I do want to remind you that the podcast is brought to you every day by LB's just across from Kroger on University Avenue there in Oxford. Nailed it this time. Uh, I'm going to do some beef ribs on the grill this weekend or on the smoker. Looking forward to doing that tomorrow. Stop by LB's. Go by and see Greg. Tell him we sent you. Get your meats. Get behind the grill this weekend. Best place to buy meat in all of the state of Mississippi. So if you're in Oxford, go by LB's. Go see Greg. Again, tell him we sent you just across from Kroger on University Avenue. And there's still time, if you're listening to this basically right after we publish it, to get one of the daily lunch specials Monday through Friday. Uh, Every day of your work week, you can go by LB's and get lunch on them. 
All right, here we go. A handful of things to get to today. First, uh, I did promise you that uh, if something came out about the the AD meeting, uh, I would bring it to you. And Ross Dellinger, who's just done an incredible job of reporting on this deal uh, with Sports Illustrated, uh, he is just been on top of all of this. And he came out with his report from inside of the SEC meeting. I, I think I jumped the gun a little bit. In fact, I know I jumped the gun. So the day the Big Ten made that announcement, I came on this podcast and said, the SEC is going to do the same. It's a matter of when, but not if. And here's why I said that. Because I thought that the Big Ten, after they did it, the Pac-12 did it, and then there was reporting that the ACC was going to do it. And so at that point, if the ACC was going to conference scheduling, the SEC just might as well have followed suit because that would have wiped out a lot of their, almost all of their marquee non-conference matchups. And so at that point, there would have been nobody to play to make it worth it. And the idea does make sense on the surface. I stand by everything I said for why the idea is a good one, but I jumped the gun. And so did a lot of people on the ACC. So now that the ACC hasn't made that decision, makes it easier for the SEC to not do the same. So here is... A handful of things that came out. This is from uh, Ross Dellinger at SI. A handful of things that came from that meeting that stood out to me. And uh, the most important thing is the SEC is going to try their best to not go conference-only scheduling. According to Ross, uh, though the dates of the games may change, officials are working to keep them as part of an altered fall season that, in the SEC's case, may include just a 10-game schedule, eight of which are conference games, and two of which would be non-conference games. I'm going to call that the 8-plus-2 model. Barring a full 12-game schedule, Dellinger writes, uh, which is extremely unlikely at this point, uh, there are three possibilities. An eight-game conference-only schedule, which I think is right now the least likely of these three. That's my guess. A 9- or a 10-game plan, that would preserve at least one scheduled matchup with a Power 5 conference program. So either eight conference only, a nine plus a nine plus one, or an eight plus two model. They're going to kind of have to blow up the schedule, it sounds like. Especially because the SEC has already lost uh, two Power 5 games with uh, Alabama and Southern Cal and Texas A&M and Colorado since the Pac-12 went ahead and made that decision. According to Ross, the league is going is trying right now to preserve the other 13 Power 5 conference games. Uh, so that includes Vanderbilt, Kansas State, Arkansas, Notre Dame, Georgia, Virginia, Ole Miss, Baylor, Louisville, Kentucky, South Carolina, Clemson, Florida, Florida State, and Georgia, Georgia Tech. I believe that's all of them. One athletic director told Ross that uh, the league has narrowed down dozens of contingencies to just a handful, but right now it's still conjecture because they don't have to make a decision today. They're still going to wait till the end of the month before they make these kind of decisions, but they have narrowed it down to the handful of choices. Greg Sankey has repeatedly said that late July is going to be when they make a decision. And what they're looking for over the next couple of weeks is any kind of momentum that shows that they will be able to turn over testing within a 24-hour period because right now that's up in the air, and then they're looking at hospitalization trends and stuff like that so they don't overwhelm 
the medical system. That's what Greg Sankey's looking for. He's taking a pragmatic approach. Based on the interviews that I've heard of his, they're not looking at, they, they don't need the coronavirus to fall off the map or disappear or have a vaccine. I've seen people suggest that they should not play without a vaccine. That's really unrealistic. In spite of what I told you on Wednesday, that there's, there's two now that are ahead of schedule that we could potentially have by late fall. It's not a realistic thing. And I'm glad to hear that conference leadership is not talking like that because it's an unrealistic expectation. But they need to be able to turn over tests. They need the trends to go in the right direction. They don't need the virus to disappear. They just need it to look better than it does right now. So he's got a couple more weeks to to see any positive change before he makes a decision. An eight-game conference-only schedule, according to Ross, would provide the most testing continuity and flexibility. But the 10-game conference-only schedule, the one that I talked about last week, is, uh, according to him, unlikely to gain support because of its rigors, but it is one of the the proposals left. A 10-game All-SEC slate would keep their scheduled eight conference games, so the ones they currently have, and just adding two more from the opposite division. Similar to the scenario that I, I put in front of you last week. Even a nine-game, according to Ross, conference-only schedule is getting pushback from the league administrators. And 1AD described the 10-game model as laughable. So it doesn't sound like that's going to happen unless it absolutely has to. The more preferred plans from everybody there are the nine or 10-game schedule with one or two non-conference games. That's, and that makes most sense uh, as well. Um, they work really hard on scheduling these games, and these games are really important. Auburn, North Carolina is important. Ole Miss, Baylor is important. Uh, so a 10-game SEC schedule would be a lot of fun, and every week would be great football. But if you can preserve these games, uh, the same uh, feeling would still exist. I mean, Ole Miss Baylor or Ole Miss Missouri, you know, they're both games that you, that you want to watch that matter. So I'm cool with that, absolutely. I imagine all of you are as well. The most important wrinkle to the entire situation, according to Ross, and this is why I said on Twitter yesterday, I believe, that if we do get a football season, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 are going to feel really stupid when the ACC, the Big 12, and the SEC come together and... uh, preserve their non-conference games against each other. When Ohio State's only playing eight games, but the SEC is playing ten, and you still get Florida-Florida State, and Clemson-South Carolina, and Ole Miss-Baylor, and so on and so on. They're going to feel really stupid when they're able to pull that off. And you had a release yesterday, and I'll get into that in a little bit, of the Power Five's guidelines to return to play. So now that everybody's kind of got a uniform system and they're doing it away from the NCAA because that's the right thing to do, you know that your Big 12 counterpart, if you're Ole Miss getting ready for the Baylor game, you know they've gone through the exact same protocols as you, and they have the financial resources to make sure they're being followed. So that's something to keep an eye on moving forward, is these leagues working together to make these games happen. Uh, There was some reporting that said that Ole Miss and Baylor wasn't that they had already discussed canceling and may, and uh, maybe they did. I I wouldn't be shocked if they did discuss canceling. Uh, 
But they they don't want to. And this is a really big step forward to make sure that they don't. This is an interesting point as well. But I have a counter to it, but still. Some SEC decision makers question the logic of a conference-only schedule, according to Ross. He continues to say, conference games, a few of them, call for a long, expensive trip, such as South Carolina to Texas A&M or Florida to to Missouri. While several non-conference, non-Power 5 games are regionalized. Auburn has a game with Southern Miss. That's a quick bus ride for them. Mississippi State hosts Alabama A&M, another bus ride. South Carolina has both East Carolina and Coastal Carolina on their schedule. Texas A&M plays North Texas. Uh, Ole Miss plays SEMO, which they can, they can drive to Oxford. It's more regional than Florida would be. So that's an interesting point. And so if they go 8 plus 2, would you see, and nobody's answered this question, but would you see Ole Miss Baylor? And you would keep Ole Miss SEMO? Or maybe try to schedule even a Southern Miss? Uh Uh-oh. Or keep that Georgia Southern game even. To try to to avoid having to pay buyouts in these buy games, but also to limit some travel if you can. Add regional opponents. Uh, The NCAA has said that you can be bowl eligible while having two wins over FCS teams, maybe to encourage people to schedule local when they can to add games while mitigating uh, risk for long travel. That's something to keep an eye on. And finally, like I've said a few times, the the viability of a spring season uh, doesn't doesn't really work. According to many SEC leaders in this story, um, the spring season would be a, quote, last resort and a fallback measure that poses a range of issues. And uh, one uh, person that was there said flatly, it's not going to work. And I've said that for a long time. Spring, The spring football season doesn't really make a lot of sense because there's no guarantee things will be better by then. And it also could very much disrupt your fall 2021. You don't want one, two seasons ruined over the sake of trying to get one in. So last resort fallback measure makes a ton of sense. They're going to try to do whatever they can to play football this fall. They they have to. And I saw an article earlier that just really uh, underscores that point. So if football does not happen, almost $1 billion would be lost from Big Ten teams. Rutgers would face a $50 million hit if they don't play football. Rutgers. Ohio State would lose more than double that amount. And that's just the school. That's a billion dollars for the Big Ten Just the schools. That doesn't take into account what happens in Columbus, Ohio. That doesn't take into account what happens in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and East Lansing, Michigan, and State College, Pennsylvania, and so on and so on. That's a billion dollars that just the schools will lose. So, as you can imagine, the SEC has more programs that are wealthier than the Big Ten. Um, That number would be bigger here. Over a billion dollars would be lost here. And that underscores the entire point and why they're making such an effort. And so when I saw this yesterday, 
uh, somebody named Jane McManus. She is a uh, sports writer for the uh, New York Daily News. Is a columnist at the New York Daily News. Said this. Quoted a uh, TMZ story where Ed Orgeron says, America needs football back because it's the lifeblood of our country. Here's what she said on Twitter. Sports writer. Said, grown man who makes living off unpaid college athletes playing games said, quote, football is the lifeblood of our country and appears to have been serious. Meanwhile, cases soaring in SEC territory. And that's just another New Yorker looking down on the South because I don't know if anybody's noticed, New York had more deaths than everybody else by a long shot because of how the governor handled it there. And anyway, not to get down that road with you. But the point is... I love how people in New York look down on the South like that as if they didn't have their own problems. But also, if you're going to be a sports writer, I mean, you should know how important football is to the South. And I'm not even talking about from a from an emotional perspective. It, we'll use the state of Louisiana as the example because that's she was talking about at Orgeron. But take the Saints and LSU football away from Louisiana for just one year and see what happens to the economy in that state. What do you think happens to the state of Louisiana? The whole state, not just New Orleans and Baton Rouge, the entire state, if just the Saints and LSU don't play football for one year. What do you think happens? It's devastating. And yeah, Ed Orgeron's a little goofy. I mean, football maybe not be the lifeblood of this country, but damn, does it fuel a lot of things. And yes, they're unpaid college athletes, I know, and, and I advocate for them getting avenues to get paid, but uh, most of them don't have any value that extends beyond their scholarship. Come on now. Uh, it, it, we diminish the value of a scholarship so much. A lot of players could get more, absolutely. But let's not pretend going to college and getting a degree while having the best access to medical care and and nutrition and training. That's where you lose people, is when you say that the scholarship doesn't have any value to it. But take football away from Louisiana for one year and see what happens. All right, turning the page. Next thing here, the USA Today releases, as they do every year, the uh, finances. Uh, for college athletic departments, revenue and expenses, basically the budgets. How much money college athletic departments made, and it's always a year behind. So it's 2018-19. They'll do 19-20 at this time next year, which will look even worse for Ole Miss. So, this is a, a problem, I think. Not a huge one. Because they can recover. But this shows exactly why Ole Miss had to make a change at head football coach. Because next year's numbers, when they look at 1920, are going to be even worse than this. Ole Miss has been passed by Mississippi State. Ole Miss is only ahead of Missouri in the SEC. and Vanderbilt, we don't know their numbers. Ole Miss is 34th in the country in 2018-19, was 34th in the country, making $108 million in revenue. Their expenses were $113 million. Now, the books are cooked a little bit on that. For example, Maryland basically spent what they made. 
Virginia, two spots ahead of them, spent a little more than they made. They made $110 million. Mississippi State is 30th now. Made 112, only spent 98. Others in the SEC, Texas A&M is number two in all of the country. $212 million in revenue, $169 million in expenses. Georgia at 574, Alabama at 764 million, Florida at 959 million, LSU at 1057 million, Auburn at 1352 million, Kentucky at 15. Basketball certainly helps them some. 150 million, Tennessee, South Carolina, 143 and 140 respectively at 16 and 17, Arkansas at 20, 137 million. And Mississippi State at 30, 112 million. Ole Miss used to be ahead of Mississippi State on these lists. They have since been passed. Next year's number is going to be even worse because all of you saw uh, what I saw in Vaught Hemingway and the attendance numbers being as bad as they were. Basketball season didn't go as they had hoped. And then you've had NCAA stuff to deal with uh, during all of these years. But I, I just could not imagine what fan morale and things would be looking like right now if Ole Miss had not made a change. When you factor in, I mean, just the the momentum that the program was on, which was a downward trajectory, the fan base was bailing at an alarming rate. But uh, on top of all of that, you have the coronavirus and things would have just been brutal. I don't know if this podcast would exist because nobody would be wanting to listen to it. This is a problem. And it feels like Ole Miss now has... Like I said a few weeks ago, I think, Ole Miss has leadership in place that is handling things differently. Chase Parham did a really nice story this morning. I'm not going to give away uh, their premium content, but he did a really nice story about their plan and how they're prepared for different capacity levels, and they'll be able to make it work, and they've budgeted for it. And very forward-thinking, pragmatic, they're prepared for this. This is not going to... 50% or less capacity is not going to uh, destroy them. They're prepared uh, for that. They've budgeted for that. They're ready. Ole Miss's leadership appears prepared now more than they have been before. So they seem to be the right people that can get them out of this mess, but this goes to show you where things were headed. And they were headed in the exact wrong direction. And getting passed by Mississippi State in revenue is, is should be, and it is, alarming for Ole Miss. They're going in the wrong direction, and they've only got Missouri behind them. They've got to play catch-up. I, I never expect them to be on the same level as Florida and LSU and Alabama, but they can certainly, and should certainly, be better than Maryland and Virginia and Purdue and Illinois and even Kansas with their basketball program and Arizona State and Indiana Ole Miss should be in Minnesota. Ole Miss should be ahead of all of them. And uh, so changes needed to be made, and, and they were made, and hopefully they can recover. But these numbers should be alarming. We didn't um, really cover that on the radio show yesterday, but that stands out to me. And it further, as a lot of things have done lately, shown exactly why a change needed to be made. Just completely, Ole Miss was in a complete free fall. And these numbers bear that out. And finally, before I let you go, there is um, more more Ross Dellinger. He found the Power 5's universal COVID protocols uh, before they announced them. 
but those are out now, and that that'll be uh, what preserves these games. As I mentioned earlier, these uh, these protocols that are agreed upon with all conferences are what is going to potentially save Ole Miss and Baylor uh, that game, for example. So here are a handful of things that stood out uh, to me. And of course, as Greg Sankey keeps mentioning, the important thing is they can get tests turned around quickly. Like they have to get results back in 24 hours or this is useless. But college teams will be required to test football players within 72 hours of games using the standard PCR test. Game officials in football and basketball should also be tested weekly because of their close contact with athletes. It does does not require coaches or staff members to get tested, but if they don't, they have to wear a mask on the sidelines, which, you know, read between the lines, coaches are, are going to get tested as well. There's a, a line in here that is interesting. It says, those who test positive must isolate for at least 10 days from the onset of their symptoms slash positive test. Until they've gone at least three days without symptoms, which the document defines as a resolution of fever without the use of fever-reducing medications and improvement of the respiratory system, meaning cough and shortness of breath, are gone. Those found to have had high-risk contact with people who have tested positive will quarantine for 14 days. So that's a little odd. Uh, Longer quarantine for somebody who may have come in contact with somebody who tested positive but a 10-day quarantine for somebody who actually tested positive. They say this 14-day quarantine is mandatory. Even if those quarantined test negative for the virus, they must still complete the 14 days without competition. That seems a little extreme. A significant restriction that could knock out large swaths of a football team. Institutions may consider testing contacts during quarantine if the local testing supply is adequate. However, this does not shorten or remove the need for a 14-day quarantine period. That just seems excessive. The NBA is not even doing that. That needs to be altered. Here's the kicker. A high-risk contact is defined as those who are within six feet of an infected person for at least 15 minutes while one or both parties is not wearing a mask. That includes anyone participating in face-to-face contact drills against each other. So they're going to work around that because there's no possible way that Alabama football is going to be derailed because a backup lineman tests positive. And everybody that participates in drills on the in, on the offensive or defensive line would be considered in high-risk contact. So they will either have drills for fewer than 15 minutes at a time, have everybody wearing a mask in practice, some kind of face covering, uh, or something like that. They are not going to allow one player, one offensive lineman, uh, to impact that. I understand why that rule is in place. They're going to work around that, though. That was the first question that came up when we were going through this is, oh, wait, what the hell does this mean for the offensive lineman? I mean, when they practice, they're in contact with each other. They'll work around that. Because that mandatory 14-day quarantine, even if you test negative multiple times, even if you test negative 10 days into your quarantine, they're still going to keep you around since that rule's in place and it's overbearing and useless. Um, They're going to work their way around it. So I read that and I was worried about it, but when you think about it closely, I just don't anticipate uh, them having a hard time finding their way around it. 
The document also details several conditions that would result in a school discontinuing competition or completing seasons. Number one, the lack of ability to isolate new positive cases or quarantine high contact risk cases on campus. That will be no trouble for Ole Miss. Number two, the inability to perform weekly testing. That's a big one. Circle that one. That's a big one. It has to be done and they have to have a test result turnover rate that is within a day or two. Because uh, right now, not everybody has that in the SEC. Some do, some don't. Some are taking a long time to get test results back. It needs to be quick. Number three, a campus-wide or local community test rate that is considered unsafe by local public health officials. That's why Ole Miss, for example, is going to do largely uh, online classes. They will have very few in-person instruction to try to mitigate that kind of a spread. Number four, and the last one, the inability to perform or excuse me, there's five. The inability to perform adequate contact tracing. I don't anticipate Ole Miss will have trouble with that. And number five, the last one. Local public health officials state that there is an inability for the hospital infrastructure to accommodate a surge in COVID-related hospitalizations. Number three and number five are their biggest concern. Well, two, three, and five are their biggest concern. They'll be able to contact trace. They'll be able to isolate positive cases and quarantine people if need be. But if they can't turn around tests quickly, if they have a massive spike on campus, if local public health officials say that the hospitals cannot take some kind of a spike, they don't have the infrastructure, then the season's dead. That's really what it comes down to. So very important handful of weeks coming up to make sure that none of those things happen. That's why I think the season's going to be delayed a little bit, and that's okay. They'll push the season back some to just help give us more time to prepare, and also hopefully uh, the trends go in the opposite direction. But there's your plan in place. I mean, that's what's going to save these quality non-conference games, is what I just read to you right there. That's what they're working on. That's what they're using to keep Ole Miss and Baylor and Florida and Florida State and so on. The universal protocols allow them to schedule these games in good faith, with good confidence, to preserve them. But until they can start turning tests over and the trends go the opposite direction, it simply doesn't matter. So that needs to happen. And it needs to happen soon. So that's it for me on this Friday. Thank you for making the podcast a part of your day. Kind of all over the place today. Uh, My brain is just scattered. So... Uh, Hopefully you enjoyed it. Looking forward to talking to you again on Monday. Have a great weekend. Don't forget to go by LBs and see Greg and tell him we sent you. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you again on Monday. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.